welcome to another episode of Drumversations, the podcast. What's it called again? Drumversations, the podcast. Drumversations, the podcast. And I am Ruth Lomax. And I am Mark Lomax. So how is everybody doing today? This has been, what, week three of the protests? Yeah, right around. And what week are we in for the pandemic? There's still a pandemic? Yeah, that's what the numbers say. Really? I mean, yeah, people are acting like it's not a thing and we didn't spend, what, three months of our lives in quarantine. Hmm, you know the best way to beat a pandemic in America? Racism. Racism. Woohoo! It's one of your jokes. <laughs> so we kid. We kid. Um, but it's no. It's no less true, though. I would like to check in with my co-host here, Dr. Mark Lomax. For those of you that might not know us, we know right now a few of our listeners know us. But there are listeners out there, Thank you. we hope, that do not know who we are. So we're not brother and sister. Absolutely not. But we are, in fact, married. a married couple. And we've been married for... A long time. 21 years. No. Oh, oh, oh. Uh-oh. Oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Where did together. the 21 years just come We've from? We've been together 21 years. Wow. We have been married 18, 19 years, actually, Ooh, this past Neither May. one of us know, clearly. Yeah. No, we just had an anniversary in May, baby. It's June. 19 on the 19th. 19 on the 19th. See, I remember. Oh, we digress. Anywho. All of you out there in podcast land, just for the record... Mark Lomax, the husband of Ruth Lomax, knows how long they've been married, when they got married, and how long they've been together. You're a researcher. That's why you get paid Props. the big, big bucks. Props. Anywho, I, I wanted to check in on my co-host. I haven't seen you really for the past 24 hours. Yeah. And what that has made me do is really think about the how role. How you miss me? The role of black men, this fight, this fight for us is not... What did you think about other men? Mark, <laughs> this fight for us is not really a... Um, this isn't a three-week fight. No. And so for a lot of us, while the last three weeks have been um, on most Americans' minds, for some of us... The last three weeks just means that now we're doing a lot more educating. Um, it's it's like on hyperspeed. It's hyper February speak. again. It's, it's February and it's MLK Day. <laughs> All at the same and time. And it's Juneteenth. <laughs> it's actually literally Juneteenth. It's literally, yeah. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. But I wanted to check in with you just because I know some things you had said on drum drumversations. I'm having a hard time. She keeps calling it drum. <laughs> Cast the drum cast the podversations. <laughs> uh, you know, it's been a long week. Well, what we were saying Friday, what I was talking about Friday. Yeah, so why don't we just get into that? Um, because I'm really interested to hear kind of what your last 24 hours have been like. Um, but additionally, what has going back to March, going back to when you were talking to me, I was I was in Mexico. During the first week of quarantine, bad girl, bad girl, bad girl. But there's Good a times. reason. There, there's a reason for all of this, and maybe one day you'll hear that story. But 
Um, just kind of go back to where you were at, where you've been at, because I think for a lot of folks, they're like all of a sudden like these closet advocate uh, uh, out of the closet, closet activists that are now out, out of, of the, the closet. closet. Yeah. Um, and folks who are soundbite, soundbite ad. I might just need to like take some water and just stop talking for a second. You go ahead. You got this. Um, so, you know, since forever, we've been in the trenches as artists, we being my ensembles, and I have been in the trenches as artists, creating work, telling these stories, and advocating for justice, equity, or as some folks say, a just verdant society verdant green pastures you know i don't like that (laughs) (laughs) and we've been saying that the way to do it is to come together and do it as a human family right this has been years now uh contrary to uh, a facebook message or something that said we were opportunist right (laughs) Uh, yeah shout out to those haters yeah Haters. haters. If you don't have haters, you're not doing the right. No, thing. we love it. But, More um, hate mail, please. Yeah, but uh, so we've been on. We were on tour, actually, and still holding down the full time job because you know you're black and you have to be multivocational, oftentimes if you're an artist, um, just to feel like you're middle class, and that means you're scrunched literally in the middle. You make too much money to get help and not enough money to, to be cool, you know, <laughs> to get some rest. So we were on tour doing work, work, like in terms of my vocation work, music, work, work be- in terms of my nonprofit work and still trying to be present as a husband and father, friend, all those things. When we got the notification that everything was shutting down on our way to Kalamazoo, Michigan, which scared everybody. Um, that was mid-March, well, March 12th, 11th, March 11th, and things were getting canceled as far out for, in, uh, at that time in June. Yeah. And now things have been canceled in terms of in t- in-person performances. Really, we're, we're being told that we probably won't be able to tour until uh, fall 21. And so pandemic hits. And um, I was telling you while you were in Mexico soaking up all the suds and sun. Suds. <laughs> in your veranda. <laughs> my salted. In your rented yacht. My salted margarita glass. <laughs> Ooh, bougie. Thank you, um, Jose. <laughs> Shout out to Hard Rock. I, I was expressing to you my fears, not only about what politically could be happening before you got back, but what I thought it was going to, the toll I thought it was going to take on black America, particularly um, poor black and brown folks who have to shelter in place or otherwise not work regular hours and what that would mean for their income and what that could mean for our society at large. And then, you know, Racism never takes a day off. Right. And, you know, back to back to back, while everybody's home, we get the stories of, and these aren't the only stories, but these are the stories that hit, you know, mainstream, where they're viral. You know, they're on mainstream media, they're on social media, they're everywhere. Because there are several stories that didn't get the same shine that happened during the pandemic. But these are the ones that broke 
the proverbial camel's back, right? Ahmad Arbery, which actually happened in February, but we didn't hear about it until March. Late, yeah. No, no. We heard about it April. Yeah. In April. And then we heard about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor within weeks, the last three or four weeks, right? So these stories have been bubbling up, right? And it, feel, it felt like quick succession. Um, in each story, though, um, which... I wouldn't say it's unique, but it's unique in this succession. We see just not not just a murder, as we see in other um, situations. Um, we saw egregious behavior by law enforcement, right? It wasn't just, you know, a traffic stop gone wrong. It wasn't just, you know, a black unarmed body in the street, you know, being shot just because. I mean, we've seen that, and we, and there were several stories like that. But in the case of Breonna Taylor, the police actually, with a no-knock warrant, bust into the home, the wrong house, mm-hmm. and shoot her eight times in her sleep, right? In the case of Ahmaud Arbery, he was hunted while taking a jog. Yeah. And in the case of George Floyd, we had eight minutes and 46 seconds of a casual knee on his neck. And him dying, calling out for his mom and everything. And, and, you know, we have these spectacles. You know, the stories are spectacle. The video of George Floyd is spectacle. And on top of everything else that's going on, we, we have to deal now with this. And so for me, trying to figure out what the band is going to do for the next year, you know, while we can't tour due to the pandemic, trying to figure out how to compose when I can't focus. And you know, manage all the Zoom calls and everything else like that and all of this on top of it. I mean, Thursday this week, excuse me, Thursday this week was the first day in the last three weeks that I wasn't on Zoom till 10 or 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I was just tired. So you asked about my last 24 hours, I was asleep. I checked out and, you know, I, I, I didn't have a choice. I, what it, I, I went to sleep at some point on Friday night and I woke up, you said something to me and I went right back to sleep and I didn't wake up again till 3.30. I got something to eat and I was back in the bed by 5. And I didn't get out of that bed until 7.30, 7.45 this morning on Sunday to ride my bike to clear my head. So what does this do for the black family that's already fragile in some respects. I mean, we, as everybody's dealing with it as right. And as black folks, family means so much to us culturally, but the media really has, um, really created this narrative that, that black men are, are absent and don't want to be Fathers don't want to be husbands, don't want to participate in the family, which is just not always true. I mean, there are a lot of absent fathers. There are a lot of absent fathers of every of ev- Right. <laughs> and so let's, let's talk a little bit about that um, because 
I think what what we're seeing in our household is just drain exhaustion. It it puts us while I understand, you know, the need for rest, it still is like you know, it it, it hits differently. Um because we need time too together. So but talk if you a don't have bit. energy to share, <laughs> you yeah. don't have energy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, families that don't have to deal with this in terms of the racialized construct that is America, you don't know what it's like to deal with all the microaggressions. You don't know what it's like to have to carry all the additional stress of um, not just being black, but being targeted because you're black. That's not something you can change. And Mark, just for clarification, because I think a lot of these terms are being thrown around and I don't know that people, they should be doing their research. Um, we are UTFG. going, we are going to give you guys some, some jewels and some freebies. Um, so if you listen to this podcast, we're saving you from some, from doing some work. So a microaggression, what would be a, a good example of a microaggression that black folks face on a daily? Oh, uh, a good example of a microaggression is when someone compliments your smile in a white workspace. Or says you speak well. Or says you're articulate. Why or is that your a kids are clean. Or, or, they, or behave, they behave. Right. Why are those microaggressions? It's a microaggression because in the American context, people of African descent have always been servants. And so we have always had to put on a mask that often is a smile, whether we want it to smile or not. And so being complimented on our smile without understanding the context of why we might be smiling. Nobody wants to go to work just because. Or you can bring <laughs> right. chicken to the cookout. Well, yeah, we, we had that too. <laughs> um, but, you know, especially in times like this, I mean, I've literally gone to work after breaking news that a black body has been slain. And I felt like I had to smile because if I didn't, there would be a problem. Yeah. And nobody really has said that to me, honestly, at work. But that's the culture that we live in. And something that I've learned is a um, protective measure. Yeah. Right? So you can deal with your pain on your own time. You can't go to work and carry that with you. Literally, I remember after a significant story about a black life being taken at work, we were talking about horses and the issues <laughs> that horses were facing. I'm like, I can't have this conversation right now when black bodies are being killed, you know? Um, and, and so that's one microaggression. The other one we talked about, you just mentioned, was um, articulate. Well, yeah, I'm articulate. I have a doctorate degree. Right. You have a master's degree. A lot. There actually are more black women who have graduated from college than anybody else in the last 10 years. 10, 5, 10 years. Right. Black women lead all data when it comes to college graduation. And yet the expectation is still that you're not going to be articulate, articulate with the king of English. Or our children are not going to. That our children aren't well behaved yeah. in, sto in, in stores or in, in um, restaurants, you know, those things. Or they don't have manners. And what people don't know culturally, black folk do not play with play manners. Like but it's, it's not even the comment as much as the fact that someone, usually a person of European descent, feels like they need to make a comment. 
and feels they can make the comment. And feels they can make the And that's the thing. That's what bothers me. I, I Thank you for the compliment about my smile, but why did you feel the need to say that? And it, it, it you know? grates on my nerves. I mean, the amount of times we have been out at restaurants with our groups, <laughs> our group of friends, which are all badass in their own right. And I'm going to talk we about... We all have kids. We all have kids. We all are doing are so well. well behaved. Wow. Well, like, well, you know, what do you expect them to be? Right. And, and a lot of people... It's really offensive, white folks. Please but, examine that. Well, but this is where the well-meaning phrase comes in. And I get what people are trying to say with that. But when well-meaning adds more trauma or adds to the trauma and adds more um uh i don't want to say pain but just like confusion to a situation let's say right because you meant well but you felt like you had to say something to me that probably i already knew and didn't need you to say in the first place i I wonder (laughs) i wonder if you know after after this this time is all said and done because we know that only a few of us are going to remain in the fight like let's be real mm-hmm. we already see that people's attention is shifting onto other things oh, like yeah. we knew that this was going to happen but i wonder if after this when we see an ally let's say someone of european descent who was still raising that fist if we say wow you're such a good ally thank you for supporting black lives it Matter. doesn't work both ways <laughs> you know why it doesn't work both ways because the history is not there mm-hmm. right i mean because of slavery right we had to get our kids because if we could not control our children, they could die. Yeah. Right? We had to learn how to be articulate. Because if we could not express ourselves, we could die. And it's not so much on the plantation that we had to learn how to be articulate. Because we needed to be inarticulate on the plantation. Yeah, even though we be, might have been articulate. You could be because killed you could for be that. killed for, for being learned. Yeah. As it were, right? Yeah. But post-slavery and even during slavery in, in, in the, the fight for freedom, right? We had to be able to articulate our ideas and our ideals so that white abolitionists and others could be drawn to the cause, right? Nobody fought for us just because, right? We had to learn how to fight in the way that white folk would understand and engage in the way that white folk would understand. And so what's happening now? I mean, a lot of the respectability politics are starting to bubble to the fore, right? Candace Owens, who I would call... Well, we've, we're trying to trade her from the black team to anybody else who will take her, right? But she made the respectability argument in saying that George Floyd was not an upstanding citizen. Therefore, she alluded to or insinuated that he deserved to die. Right. Right. And, and that's just not... Which is okay. something... So for those of us that have parents of a certain age, we were taught, you know... You need to make sure you don't do anything to make a white person feel like, you know, to feel uncomfortable. uncomfortable. We can't, we would have to say, like, white people. Right. When we were, right, right. you know, when they were around, like, you couldn't just say, oh, the white girl over there. Although that was pretty common. I went to an all-white school. So the amount of times... And this might even be a whole other segment. But the amount of times I heard racist derogatory slurs remarks and i then had to silence when i'm describing someone as a white person well but that's the nature of privilege and that's why you know the reverse microaggression does not work 
right? So when we're talking about um, any of it, any of it, respectability politics, you know, I can send you just as many pictures of well-to-do business folks who got lynched in three-piece suits and dresses with overcoats on as I can of people with, with overalls. Right. It wasn't a class issue. Um, So the whole and that's where the sorry, that's where the articulate comment really bugs me, bothers me, because it's a classist type of argument. Right. If you're articulate, if you're not articulate, then you've not been educated well. Right. And in America, a good education often is a private education or it's a public education in the neighborhood that has higher tax revenue. Right. Property tax, which is often predominantly white based on at least in columbus how uh schools are funded and those schools are funded that way because of redlining yeah right so that's a federal policy that led to more funding for one school than another school that also then has outcomes of a better education at one school than another and then you have this um disconnect between you know how people present themselves and so that whole comment about you being articulate means, oh, hey, you, you've got an education. Well, we, we always taught ourselves, even when we weren't supposed to. But we couldn't always let you know what we knew, even in the way that we spoke, because it was illegal to read. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then the reverse microaggression won't work uh, beyond respectability because, again, the power dynamic is not there, right? The historic nature of racialized oppression from slavery to today says that those comments have more weight coming from white folk to black people than they'll ever have from black people going to white folk. That's why hearing the word nigger versus the word honky does not happen. I remember the first time somebody (laughs) said, well, what about, you know, being called a honky or a cracker? Like that. You can choose to be hurt or not by that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have the same sting. It, 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 it does. Absolutely doesn't. And maybe, maybe it does. Maybe I'm not a white person, so maybe it well, does. It doesn't have the same historic connotation. It is a classist uh, slur, right? Um, to a great extent. I don't know too many one percenters walking around calling themselves hunkies. You know. I, I just have never heard that. I, I've heard those terms, honky, redneck, what have you. I hear douchebag a lot in, and those, in the those, upper echelons of class, but not the other words. Those words are also not, they've not been like embraced by America. The N-word is well, totally extent, embraced right. by America. Right. But that, People want to use, is it okay if I say it? Because I'm cool. Like, when can I be cool enough to say the N-word? Well, this is like a whole other thing. But that's because the American lexicon is racist. Right? Yeah. Can you loan me a couple bucks? Yeah. The buck well, stops here. The buck stops here? Well, what's a buck? A buck was a male, African male slave. So before we had paper money in the way that we really understand it now, right? These are gems. These buck, are gems, by the way. <laughs> if you you were, don't have to look this up. <laughs> if you were past, well, even when we had paper money, but, you know, people, black people in or America. Currency up until a certain time, were always worth more than dollars, like paper currency, right? So if you loan me a couple bucks, that means I can go build a house. Right. You know, if you loan me a couple of dollars, I still got to go get a couple bucks to build my house. Right, right. (laughs) Right. So when you use that term buck, you know, that's, that's drawing on our racist heritage, and we don't 
even understand that as a country. So all of that runs together when we're going through times like this because it is not just about the language. It's everything. It's not just about our interactions and, excuse me, the microaggressions. It's everything. All of that happens simultaneously, right? And there's just no escape. And that and that's exhausting. There's no escape. And that's exhausting. And I mean, this is not like I said, this isn't uh, for the last three weeks we've been feeling this. So now we're tired. So to the people to the people that um, are saying, gosh, I'm tired of hearing about covid. I'm tired of hearing about racism. I'm sorry. That's a privilege that we don't have a privilege to just be able to check out. Yeah, we can't just check out. We can't just focus on our kids and our family as much as I try and I want to do that. There's always this other thing that I've got to deal with every day. Every day. Anytime I post something on social media, and that is really like my outlet, um, hoping that this podcast can take some of that um, away and, and channel it in a different way. But you still have to be concerned about who sees it. Yeah. I have to be concerned with who hears this. I have to be concerned with who sees what my daughter posts, who sees what my husband posts. And I post a lot of stuff that's not really good for business. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things where just being politically active and being black while working in white spaces creates a whole lot of issues that non-black people don't ever have to think about. Yeah, and it's it's just not even a choice to me to be politically active or not. No, it's not a choice. That's so when I was doing that interview with um, uh, Afropop Worldwide, he asked me why or whether or not I thought I, I was a political artist. And I said the same thing. I don't understand the question because to be black and an artist in America, I think you don't have a choice. Even if you don't want to be political, your work is political because your body and your mind, your intellect, everything is politicized in America because of racism, right? There was a time, and there are still some uh, currents of that now, where a black composer was an oxymoron because it wasn't believed that we had the intellectual capacity to create works of art in music, in letters, that we couldn't do science, that we couldn't do any of these things, right? So if you're an artist now, creating from the core of who you are, that is absolutely political, right? And how do you create a political art like what vacuum are you living in <laughs> which is another privileged comment i mean i know there i got into some facebook fight with someone where there was a picture depicting oh, yeah. uh donald trump and it was like an effigy and he was bloody blah 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 it was the kathy griffin picture from 2013 and the person said to me i wasn't even talking about politics she was talking about a human being. First of all, <laughs> I don't know that we're really considering, we, we, we're trying to trade him too, from the human family to any other alien species that will take him. I think there's a place for him. It's Hell. And, Yeah. It, so that I think he's already on that team. Today's his birthday, by the way. Go Obama. Today's Barack Obama's <laughs> birthday. Barack Obama day. Our, our president's birthday. <laughs> But, yeah, and the, the privilege to be able to say, I'm commenting only on this picture 
sans the political message that's being um, suggested even, even if it, if it wasn't explicit, is a privilege, especially in a context where Donald Trump is a person who regularly, routinely gaslights, but has absolutely been both, well, all of these, racist, sexist, homophobe, everything, right? He does not like people. And yet, people defend him for not liking people. And they think they're doing the right thing, which is why America is experiencing what it's experiencing right now. You know. Again, this is all very exhausting. Um, so this is this is a little look into what it is to be black in America. You all, a lot of you are seeing some things that you've never experienced before. Um, I, I know when I saw the George Floyd funeral, I was like. That's real. That's real. That's and real. <laughs> we're inviting you all into something that a lot of you, and this is a good thing too. I think white folk, if you really want to be an ally, do something outside of your norm. Look at your Facebook friends. See how many of them, look at your friends, right? And see what your friends are talking about. It's very telling. If your friends are all kind of saying, questionable things then then that might be something for you to adjust in yourself like why are you why do you have friends like that in your circle and maybe that's something that you need to adjust and and maybe modify and figure out who needs to be part of you and who doesn't and and do something like go to a black church black folk are some of the most welcoming people to a fault Mark is kind of making we got slavery. Mark is making like, a hey, face come on, like, human. Oh, my bad. Yeah. I didn't know you weren't human. <laughs> but let's just say, you know, you you go to a church just to experience different culture, not to go as a, a you know, like to watch the spectacle. To you know, we had watched that to really authentically. We watched a documentary. Uh, what was it called? Human zoos. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there folks in our history, it's on YouTube. Yeah, in our history, there were times, there still are times where black folk are put on parade for white folk enjoyment. And quite literally, the Bronx Zoo had a black man in a cage. Oh, Tabinga. As a, as a exhibit. Um, what was the the woman in France? That um, she was care, she was taken um, throughout Europe, and she was put on display. Oh yeah, I I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember her name. We're struggling today, clearly. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, there there are ways for you to get engaged beyond hashtags and beyond. You know, now asking folks, you know, what are the black businesses? Truly follow through with that. Become become consumers of black culture. And by that, I mean, support black artists, uh, support black church, support, you know, whatever it is that, that you would not, and do it authentically and do it. If, if, if it makes you feel some type of way or your family members are like, I don't really want to be here. Don't, don't force that, you know? Yeah. That's the worst thing. But like, so on our website, marklomaxii.com, www.marklomaxii.com, there is a statement uh, regarding everything that's been going on. And at the 
very bottom of that statement, right above my name, it says click here for additional resources. And there is a list of resources at that link that's been put together by Dr. Keisha Hunley Jenkins, LaShawn Carter, Marguerite Jade, and myself for folks who want to be or consider themselves allies. And the thing is, you know, like Ruth said, it, it's a good thing to do right now, absolutely immediately that you can do is support black businesses, uh, including artists. Um, but the bigger thing is culture shift, right? A lot of folks who are just waking up to this want to see what can be done right now to change everything right now. Right. And I caution folks, not because I'm no, I don't feel the urgency of now. Of course I feel the urgency of now. I felt the urgency of now ever since I've come to... I was in second grade the first time I was called a nigger by somebody that wasn't in my family. Like, not the way we use it, <laughs> but the way it, it's used to hurt people, right? And I was in second grade. And so ever since then, I've been in this fight because I was drawn in. I, I didn't choose it. it. It's just what it is, right? Um, but... The best way to be effective in this fight is to educate yourself on what the fight really is, right? Mm. To understand what American history really is. The, not the history that you were taught in school. Right. But the history as it really is. You know, uh, Karen and Barbara Field's book, Racecraft, that talks about the construct of race and the power dynamic that is racism, Right. Because we have people who say they're allies, but they don't really understand that dynamic. Right? I mean, and I think even, and you can probably, Mark, for all of you that don't know this, he has on hand a, a book list. Always. Um, but one of my first books that I ever read that made me like, whoa, and I was in high school, and I remember my mom told me to read it, and I was like, I'm not reading that. It's probably about some pilgrims <laughs> before the Mayflower. I oh, remember yeah, I remember having no idea what that book was about, but before... The, the title before the Mayflower made it seem like it was going to be something about the history of, of Puritans coming to Boston, to Massachusetts colony. I was like, what? And so that was, that was really like an introduction. And I feel like now is a great time to do that, that digging. I'm not, look, I will be the first to admit sometimes <laughs> I, 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 I'm not a reader, but I have read and I will read. Um, and I am a person who really absorbs documentaries. Like that is my medium. I love documentaries. So if you're more like me, you know, there are plenty of documentaries 13th out there. Start with 13th. Start with, I mean, there's, there's just so much out there. Um, so you shouldn't feel like you have to ask your black friends for what to do. And, and for the most part, most of our friends are beyond this. And so I'm hoping that a lot of our friends start doing that, that digging deeper where they're now like, oh, okay, um, what else can I read? You know, what else do I, what else can I learn? And we are always learning too. Absolutely. There was something that I learned the other day um, from a documentary we watched and I had never heard that term before. But at any rate, I'm hoping that folks do that, that deeper, that deeper dig. Um, because in order for us to really move forward, we have to move from the milk kind of conversation, literally milk toast to the meat. Right. It seems like every time America hits this precipice, 
we have to have these one-on-one conversations as if we haven't been here before. The only way we get over the precipice is that we actually learn the real history of America, and then we can move on. That's why, again, the 400 is so important, I think, in these kinds of conversations, because its whole arc of past, present, and future uses historic context for the present moment that gives us all a similar or the same foundation so we can create a different future, right? What's the 400? The 400 is a 12-album, eight-and-a-half-hour cycle that I composed and produced and was released uh, all on the same day on January 23rd, 2019. And it, it was written initially to commemorate the 400 years that we've been here and really point to the next 400 years. But now I think it's taken on a whole other um, kind of connotation because I'm learning through all of this that so many people just are either unwilling to do the work because it's a lot of work or just don't know where to start, which to your point, you can start anywhere, right? You don't have to have that definite place. Um, But I'm hearing that not just from, from white folk, but from everybody, any and everybody, young black people, older black folk who, you know, have tried to play the game and go along to get along, and now they just can't play the game anymore. Like, where do I start? How do I engage, you know? And really, there is no right place to engage. You know, the best things you can do immediately aren't going to change things immediately, <laughs> right? right? But change starts with you. So you can change, like you said earlier, your, your spending habits, you know? Look at your friends list on your social media. How many people of color are in your friend group? If you don't have that many people of color or any, then you need to go meet some new people. Right. And authentically. Yeah. Not just like, hey, I, I need, need a black, black friend. <laughs> I need a black friend. Could you believe my, my no, black friend? No. Go to MarkLomaxII.com. And, and you can and, find a friend? And, well, no, you can't find a friend. But you can find a resource list <laughs> that has some books, some podcasts, and other ways to, to educate yourself. And share that list of things. It's not comprehensive. We don't pretend that it is. But it does have some great places to start based on, like, like you said, Ruth, the medium that makes most sense for you. Some people yeah. aren't readers. Other people love podcasts. Some people like documentaries. All, all, oh, I Goodness. keep hitting my printer. All of that is there as a starting point. But here's the thing. Listen to music. I mean, there's, there's so much good stuff. There are some really good folks out there doing some really good work. It's all, it's all available. It's all there. Google. Anything and everything about racism, right? What is it? How did it start? Where did it come from? You know, again, another great book is two great books. Ibram Candy's Stamped from the Beginning traces the use of the concept of race all the way back to the, I think, 15th century. And his follow-up book to that is How to Be an Anti-Racist, you know, which is a term that's relatively new to me because... I just never thought about it like that, you know? So again, like Ruth said, we're learning things also, but even in these three ways to engage, you know, um, supporting black businesses, uh, educating yourselves and sharing resources that you come across and engaging your friends uh, and, and hopefully engaging more friends or new friends who are people of color so that's four things, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I think our list could could go on. Well, I'm, that's what I'm saying. It's not <laughs> comprehensive as a place to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
none of that is going to change things right now. Right. And here's the thing that I think people don't understand who are just now waking up to these issues for whatever reason. We have been fighting this fight for 500 plus years, right? Because slavery didn't start in 1619 when the first Angolans came to North America. For 150 years or so prior to that, uh, Portuguese and others were taking slaves out of uh, Central and West Africa to the Caribbean and South America, right? So 401 years, 1619 to, to, to the present, has been the North American right. slave trade, right? So we have been fighting for our liberation since, you know, the late 15th century when Ferdinand and Isabella got the okay from the Catholic Church to begin their slave trade. And I would say a good documentary to watch that kind of talks about that is Dr. Skip Gates' Black and Latin America. Oh, yeah, that's good. That is good. Um, because it really it really talks a lot about the slave trade and how it um, how it really affected Latin America. And, and, and the roots of that culture that yeah. we see now. Right. And, and that gives you a more global and holistic view of slavery and what it has done to the world. But... The reason why education is so important is because I know that there are a lot of people who want to be allies, who consider themselves allies, who want to engage. And the first question is always how. You educate yourself and you'll figure it out, right? You, you go through these resources and you'll start to see ways that you can best engage because it's multi-level. It's, we have several fronts, right? There's the corporate front. There's the policy front. There's the economic front. There's the class front. I mean, class and economics kind of go together, but I'm saying economics in terms of uh, black businesses and class in terms of how we view each other from a class-based stratification. I mean, all of these things go hand in hand. And so I can't tell you, even as a scholar, how best to engage because I don't know how best to engage for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you figure that out the more information you have. And, and you, you make me think of something that I feel like we haven't talked a lot about, but the role of children in all of this. Mm -hmm. I think for some folks, your children can also uh, be helpful in, because this movement right now, this is being led by Gen Zs. Gen Zs, who they if have you're, a different it, they have a different, totally different perspective. And if you're like us, and you have kids that are eighteen and teenagers, e teenagers, really. tweens, you know, Early they 20s. they they know what's going on, um, and so use them as a resource because a lot of times they're going to be the ones. I'm thinking about one of our really good friends now, and I'm thinking about how her sons can sort of say like, "Mom, this is like what's going on," mm -hmm. and it's it's sometimes like, "Oh wow, I wouldn't have thought about that um, until you know my sons kind of brought this up, and and now I see." Um, and so, you know, I think that that's a really, that's a really powerful, um, that's a powerful tool just to engage your kids in the conversation around race. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is that race is not going anywhere anytime soon. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon, not because we don't want it to, but because it's so ingrained into the foundation of America, that in order for us to really do away with it substantively, we literally have to dig up those roots and get rid of that. And that's generational change. 
Yeah. Right. And so that's why I say one of the first things to do beyond supporting black businesses and economic development, if you're in the corporate space and making sure that you're doing what you can to ensure black business people are able to access capital and scale, because that helps with the economics of race, because black people have, um, you know, the racial wealth gap to contend with on top of everything else. Um but education is key because understanding how race is rooted in America also helps us understand how to defeat it as a concept and get rid of it. We should always teach that history once we've gotten there, but we have to understand it at an equal plane right now so we can do the work to rid ourselves of this virus mm. called race. And I, as we're wrapping up, I'd like to add to that, you know, make sure if you're an ally that you're giving your black friends, your black family in some case, you're giving them the permission. And for black folks, we're allowing ourselves the time to, to rest. We have to. Um, one of my best friends, Dion Custer Edwards, said yesterday because I was I was just kind of concerned and sharing some concern around things that were going on in our home. And she said, you know, make sure you um, read some of what the NAP ministry is talking about. And the mm. NAP ministry is an organization. I think it's um, I think it's out of Atlanta. But really, what they're doing is they're saying NAP as in taking nap a nap. As in taking yeah. a nap. Um, Really, what they're saying is when we're at doing this work, this work is exhausting. And we, because of systemic racism, a lot of times black folks are considered lazy if they want to, you know, take a break or, you know, we have to work harder than our white counterparts. And so understand that whole context and understand why we're tired and then be okay with us when we need to rest. I'm saying that for myself, but I'm also saying that for all of us, we, we've got to, we've got to be allowed to rest. So things like COVID don't disproportionately affect us so that we're not at a higher rate for, you know, contracting diabetes and all of these, all of these health disparities are ultimately connected to the toxic stress that we live in every day. Right. Our, our negative outcomes in all of the social determinants of health can all be traced back to that. Yeah, it's almost impossible to be 100% healthy psychologically, mind, body, and spirit, rather, when you have to face, even for those of us who don't want to see it and choose not to see it, even that's an expenditure of energy. You know, the, the work it takes to not see some foul, racist stuff when it happens, microaggressions when they happen, you know, it, it takes a lot of work even to do that. And so it can it can wear on you no matter how you choose to face it or not. So, yeah, that grace is, is really cool. And we like you said, we need to give it to ourselves. Yeah. Which has been hard for me to do, it honestly. Is. And it's it's hard to watch. So It's hard to watch me try to give myself grace. It's hard to watch your, you not giving yourself grace and not taking the rest you need. I'm going to take a nap right now. All right. Well, Mark, I have enjoyed talking to you today. I feel like we could go on and on. I've enjoyed talking to you, too. All right. I love you. I love you, too. Aw, black love. love is beautiful. <laughs> 
And thank you for tuning in to Drumversations, the podcast. I'm Ruth Lomax. And I'm Mark Lomax. See you next time. Peace. Peace.